0: informing america's farmers and ranchers it's adams on agriculture produced by the american ag radio network here's your host
1: mike adams hello everyone and welcome to adams on agriculture thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day hope you're having a good day here's what we're going to talk about we're going to get the latest on this labor department proposal to overhaul the h2a farm labor program alice crittenden with the american farm bureau federation will join us ag groups are still looking uh, at this uh, proposal some 489 pages and uh, seeing what they like don't like in there we'll get uh, some uh, thoughts on that on today's program what would be the improvements over what we have now what are some of the concerns still there uh, still a lot of concerns over the wild horse population on public lands we're going to talk with ethan lane he's executive director of the public lands council and with NCBA, he'll be joining us later in the program and we'll continue our crop updates we're going to go to the boot heel of missouri today down in dexter missouri and get a report on conditions there from charlie cruz but right now we'll start things off with the news from AgriPulse communications phil brasher joins us phil thanks a lot are they getting any closer to uh, working out some kind of a deal on, uh, on spending limits and keeping the government going?
2: Uh, looks like there is some progress. Uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was uh, quoted this morning um, saying that they, they have agreement on the top line and uh, for two years, top line on spending, and uh, on the extension of the debt Limit uh, that's the other big issue that's uh, in play, however, uh, they have not yet agreed apparently on uh, uh, you know, how to offset. Republicans want uh, some uh, cuts to spending to offset uh, uh, these uh, higher budget limits as well. So, we'll, we'll stay tuned. Um, uh, but they are there are signs of some progress.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Meanwhile doesn't sound like a whole lot of progress going on in talks between the U.S. and China.
2: Uh, Really, we're hearing almost nothing. Uh, We actually pressed uh, Senate Finance Chairman uh, Chuck Grassley on this uh, earlier in the week uh, to try to get some sense of optimism out of him and uh, really had no success. He said the only positive thing is that they have been – Talking, but uh, he just hasn't seen anything to make him think uh, uh, there's any kind of resolution uh, in sight. So, uh, no, it's just uh, really, you know, I'm, you know, we've, we've seen so many fits and starts in this in these negotiations too that uh, it's, it's you know, <laughs> people are really, really lowering their expectations.
1: What about USMCA? How are you reading the congressional tea leaves on that?
2: Well, I think the positive thing, if you want to get this passed, um, is that uh, the House Democrats and the uh, U.S. Trade Representative Bob uh, Lighthizer keep, keep meeting. They're meeting it once a week. Um, they met again this week. Uh, Democrats uh, say they told him they want more, uh, they want some specifics from him on how he would address their the concerns that they have. Um, they've been meeting on specific issues uh, each week, uh, and they plan to meet again next week. So those talks uh, keep going. I mean, this is not going to be on the floor, on the House floor, before this fall. Uh, and so now it's, uh, you know, the slow prodding, slow plotting negotiations uh, between Lighthizer and House Democrats and at some point um, – the White House wants uh, Speaker Pelosi to say, okay, we're ready, send up the implementing legislation, and we'll take it out.
1: I've been predicting we'll see a vote uh, when, right at the deadline when they're ready to head out for Christmas break.
2: <laughs> Look, that is a uh, very good uh, prediction. I would not argue with you.
1: Yeah, that. A pressure for a break, a holiday break, seems to be uh, when the most uh, gets done in Congress. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, meanwhile, yeah. Meanwhile, we're going to be talking in this next segment uh, about the uh, proposal by the Labor Department to uh, overhaul the H-2A farm labor program. Uh, what is the reaction you've heard so far there in Washington, D.C.? It's a, it's a little, a little.
2: Bit- but I think there are a number of things in here that uh, farmers have been looking for. Uh, I think the, the, the one thing that they've been a little uh, cautious in reacting to is the, uh, the change in the wage rates, as uh, they're called the adverse effect wage rates, which winds up being the floor of what they have to pay. It's currently based on an, an average per region for all farm workers, regardless of their position. And they've been going up sharply in some areas, um, and that's been a big uh, complaint of uh, from farms. They, uh, you, uh, the Labor Department has proposed to uh, change that to significantly. And one of the big things is they would separate out supervisors and other workers, so the supervisors would have a higher wage rate, presumably. Uh, field workers, for example, would have a lower wage rate. Um, so that uh, potentially could uh, make a significant change. Uh, there there are a number of other changes that, uh, un- that farm groups unquestionably uh, welcome. One of them is something called staggered entry, where they could uh, make one application for the workers they need during a season, regardless of whether they're coming in at planting or coming out at harvesting. And that would take care of all of them rather than having separate applications for um each group of workers that they need to come in at a particular time.
1: So we'll see uh, how that goes and what the the reaction is. is uh, farm groups especially look closer at it, but the other groups are looking at it as well. Uh, before we let you go, Phil, should we expect anything really big to happen in Congress before their August recess or not?
2: <laughs> no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think the next side of uh, things that people really want to see some progress on is the, uh, this, these budget caps that you brought up at the beginning and the, the debt uh, ceiling, uh, so that, uh, they can get going on, uh, spending, uh, legislation for fiscal 2020, which starts October 1st, which is not that far away. So, um, These bills aren't going to get passed before then, but uh, it's going to be somewhat after, but they really need to get. I mean, they're just really stuck, and things are stalled right now because they don't have these spending caps, these limits on what they can spend. So that's the big
1: thing. All right, so we'll keep an eye on that. Phil, as always, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you.
2: Yep, always good to be here. Thanks.
1: Take care. Phil Brasher with AgriPulse. Communications. Yeah, that August recess getting close now and uh, still some big items uh, to address, especially those uh, budget items and keeping the government open and funded. So we'll see what they come up with there. So we're going to talk more about this proposal of changing the H-2A farm labor program. Uh, Ag groups have been calling for some time for improvements in this program. Ag labor is a critical issue across uh, the country. And uh, many have pointed to the H-2A visa program as needing some uh, changes to help address some of those uh, concerns. We'll talk about it with Allison Crittenden with the American Farm Bureau Federation. That's coming up next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up.
3: Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, are safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov.
4: The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed.
5: My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual, mm-hmm. and uh, she didn't know
4: It could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council.
2: Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration.
4: Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover tar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
1: Reaction has been mixed to the Labor Department's proposal to overhaul the H-2A Farm Labor Program. Let's talk about it with Allison Crittenden, Director of Congressional Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Allison, thank you for joining us. Um, I know that you and... Um, Farm Bureau and a lot of groups are still looking at this. Uh, I mentioned the mixed reaction. Some have come out and said uh, they don't like it. Others have said they welcome some of the parts of it. Uh, what is your reaction so far from what you've seen?
7: Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on today to discuss. Uh, you know, Our initial reaction is that it looks like the administration has you know, listened to a lot of the concerns from stakeholders in the ag industry and has, has attempted to address those concerns in this proposed rule. Um, you know, our, we're still reviewing all of the minor details, but at first glance, there seem to be some improvements that farmers will, will welcome.
1: Let's take a look at those first of all. What do you see as the biggest positives to this proposal?
7: Um, you know, I think the, the efforts to modernize the program and bring it into 2019, um, you know, including allowing for electronic filing and e-signatures, Those are things that sound so simple, but they'll make the application process a lot easier for folks to use and hopefully ensure that the application process is also efficient and minimizes any room for delays. Um, So I think that falls in the modernization bucket.
1: Now, some of the criticisms of the proposal have come from groups like Farm Worker Justice and also the United Farm Workers. United Farm Workers said the plan would make it easier to deny jobs to domestic farm workers so growers can hire more temporary foreign agricultural guest workers and pay them less. Uh, What are your thoughts on that criticism?
7: You know, we're currently experiencing a labor shortage um, in the ag industry. That, that's evident through the, the low unemployment rate in the United States. You know, we have an unemployment rate of 4%. Um, so farmers are already struggling to meet their labor demands. Uh, you know, the H-2-A program is certainly not, not the easiest route to obtaining labor. It's more or less a program of last resort for a lot of folks. Um, And I think most farmers would rather go the the simpler option of hiring someone domestically, but unfortunately those folks just aren't available.
1: Yeah, the demand for uh, these applications has been going up considerably year after year, and I know that many in agriculture have said the current system just isn't working.
7: That's correct. And that demand, if I give you some numbers here, In 2012, there were over 85,000 positions for H-2A certified. And as of fiscal year 2018, there were over 242,000. So I think that underscores that there is a real shortage here and folks are having to turn to other means to get labor.
1: So what do you think is the focus here? Is it about getting workers or is the focus more going to be on what they're getting paid?
7: Um, I think it's a two-pronged approach. Uh, I think, first, it's making sure that the process is more efficient. um, It's modernized to how, you know, businesses correspond with one another and with government agencies today. And I think, you know, it is looking at at the AWER and the methodology there and ensuring that, you know, by, by disaggregating by each occupation, I think DOL's goal here is to ensure that, you know, a more managerial role is being paid what a manager should be paid, and maybe the more entry-level positions are also getting paid um, a a wage that corresponds to that type of work.
1: We're talking with Allison Crittenden. She is Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. How does this address seasonal workers? Because I know this is a challenge uh, for dairy producers and others that want year-round workers. So how does it address that?
7: Well, so as the H-J program currently stands, it's only available to folks engaged in seasonal or temporary agriculture, Um, although the the proposed rule here does invite some dialogue on on who decides, what agency decides, um, what is, you know, temporary or seasonal uh, for each uh, job application. So um, I think by allowing for the discussion to determine whether DOL or DHS, will determine whether a job is temporary or seasonal. Um, It also opens up the discussion on how to bring in those year-round industries that, you know, currently don't have access to the program. Uh, I think, you know, being able to bring in those year-round folks, that's certainly something that has been a a goal for Farm Bureau and for a lot of the ag industry and something that we look forward to commenting on.
1: You know, I I find it interesting, concerns about – this would make it harder for domestic workers to find jobs on farms actually the problem has been right Allison uh, for farmers to find workers w- domestic or otherwise to, uh, to work on the farms and especially it's been hard to find uh, domestic workers
7: absolutely um, we, we've heard from some of our farmer members that you know because of the labor shortages that they've experienced they've had perfectly good crops in the field and They don't have the folks to pick them, so they find themselves just plowing them under. Um, So you certainly hate to see the the waste there and uh, the loss of potential economic benefit.
1: All right, so we are seeing, as I said, mixed reaction. So what is the process this proposal will go through now? I mean, is it a public comment period? Will changes be made? How, how, How does this play out?
7: Yeah. So, what this will be once it's published in the Federal Register, um, we've heard that there will be a 60-day comment period on it. Um, so, this is called a notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, so, essentially, that is DOL saying, you know, here are the things we are thinking about changing and doing. Um, we welcome your feedback, and we'll take that feedback into consideration before before we publish a final rule. Um, you know, certainly, I think out in farm country, folks would love to see this. Uh, process move along, along quickly, so these positive changes that we've seen um, could be implemented you know, before next year. Of course, we know that there's a long process ahead, and you know, the folks uh, at the administration will have a lot of comments to review, but um, you know, we certainly look forward to weighing in and providing our feedback and helping the administration as they come up with what the final rule will be.
1: It seems to me to, to be a positive that at least there is this effort to address this portion of the immigration uh, policy, the H-2A farm labor program, because it seems like up until now, even though everyone said that, that needs improved, it's been caught up in the overall uh, debate and impasse in this country over a, a general immigration policy. So. Uh, It's kept anything from happening specifically on this issue, but perhaps maybe this will be a path forward, at least getting the improvements on uh, the ag labor issue.
7: Absolutely. I think this is a welcome sign to see this issue addressed on its own um, and separate from the broader immigration debate. Farmers and ranchers have long been asking for a solution here, and it's great to see it addressed, you know, just within the ag space
1: it's a start but as you were indicating it, it's it's got a long ways to go
7: it does it does for sure and of course you know being that this is administrative action it, you know they are limited in scope as to what they can do and um, you know we certainly will continue to engage with folks in congress as well as the administration to address all the issues that you know the ag industry faces in obtaining labor
1: yeah and no really no proposal is unanimously accepted it's a starting point it's a blueprint and then people weigh in and then it's a work in progress right
7: absolutely absolutely yeah this this is just a starting point um, you know I, I would expect that the final rule will have some changes perhaps uh, based on the comments received from um, you know those that engage in the, in the rulemaking process
1: yeah hopefully what comes out in the end will be a uh, a compromise or at least a collaboration of those ideas to come up with a with a better plan. I I guess that's where you start. Uh, there's agreement that the, the current plan needs fixing.
7: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, as you were saying, we just really appreciate, um, you know, the administration's recognition of the issue and attention to it and, you know, allowing for industry to be a part of the process and fixing it.
1: The concern, though, is we've had efforts to kind of fix this before, and it hasn't really worked so well. So well, hopefully this will be the time it is, but we know we have seen before how big a challenge it is.
7: It's a heavy lift. That is, that is for sure. Um, you know, we certainly remain optimistic that perhaps the rulemaking process, um, you know, can go through a bit easier than a, a legislative solution. But, um, you know, there are certainly hurdles that uh, are, you know, folks that are engaged in a rulemaking process will likely
1: uh, encounter all right well we'll look forward to uh, seeing what the comments are and the proposals to change the proposal we'll see how those go as well allison thank you very much
7: thanks mike
1: allison crittenden she's director of congressional relations for the american farm bureau federation well another Long-standing debate has been over what to do with the wild horse population on public lands. We're going to talk about that next with Ethan Lane with NCBA and Executive Director of the Public Lands Council. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we have talked before about the potential benefits of gene editing and livestock production, but there is a, a battle going on about oversight of that technology. Should it be with FDA where it's at, or should it be moved to USDA, like many in the livestock industry, like the National Pork Producers Council would like to see? Let's talk about it with Dr. Dan Kovic, who is Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Dan, thanks for joining us again. Why do you feel it's best to have the oversight with USDA?
2: What we're concerned about is what is
5: actually getting approved. Is it the edit or this altered genome? And how does that affect how the descendants of these animals are going to be regulated on farms and ranches? That's where we feel that that post-approval piece that the USDA has the expertise, and more importantly, the existing authority to regulate the descendants of gene-edited animals.
1: For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture.
3: Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain export sales have once again failed to meet trader expectations this week with both corn and soybeans missing the low end of expectations. Traders are watching for further news out of Washington where u.s. treasury secretary Stephen mnuchin says that a teleconference between u.s. and chinese leaders will take place some traders worry that if a new round of face-to-face meetings are not announced soon it could signal that the trump administration could apply more tariffs to further pressure china in the talks new crop november soybeans closed lower on wednesday marking the third consecutive session of declines on the downside support comes in at eight ninety four and a quarter on this thursday an hour into the trading day, November soybeans at nine bucks a bushel, down a half cent. December corn, the near-term trend said to be choppy and weak. Wednesday's close below the 20-day moving average is a weak signal. That level seen at 4:45 and a quarter. December, an hour in at 4:34 and a half, down seven cents. Chicago wheat, September down five and a half at five dollars even a bushel. Minneapolis spring wheat September up a quarter of a cent at 528 Kansas City wheat trending 4 cents lower. Livestock the American live cattle futures the August contract is down a nickel at 10805 October down 35 at 10840 feeder cattle August contract down 75 at 13987 Saw some cash cattle activity beginning Kansas yesterday at $1.11 on a live basis roughly a dollar lower than a week ago. Lean hog futures, August down a dollar twenty-five at eighty seventy-five. The Dow is down sixteen points. S and P up a point. Crude oil down ninety-one cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network
1: Well a growing problem has been uh, the wild horse population on public lands and the debate over what to do with those horses, how to best care for them um, Testifying this week uh, in before Congress was Ethan Lane with NCBA and executive director of the public lands Council he joins us now Ethan thank you for being with us. first of all for those not really familiar with the situation give us an overview
5: thanks Mike you know it, this is a, a unique situation in the west I, uh, There are a ton of horses on public rangelands in the west and, and those horses are a, uh, a remnant of Spanish explorers, uh, uh, tribal lands, uh, uh, you know ranching operations, homesteaders, hundreds of years of people uh, leaving horses out there that have become feral and, and taken over large chunks of of rangeland in the 1970s they uh congress passed a law the wild and free-roaming horse and borough act which gave the bureau of land management authority over these horses and tools to manage them you know they set an appropriate management level of about 26,000 horses and they told the blm anything above that you can remove and sell and slaughter for commercial purposes or do what you need to do with them um, what we saw in the mid 2000s was congress coming in behind them on their own bill And putting some riders in appropriations bills, which restricted the BLM's ability to use those tools. On the on the backside of that rider, we've seen populations go from about 31,000 in 2005, when the rider was first put in place, to 88,000 horses on range today, with another 50,000 in off-range holding facilities. So that's about an $80 million a year cost to the American people. Fifty million of that is simply feeding those off-range horses. And because of these animal rights groups that have sort of imposed their will on this process, BLM has no tools to control this population, which is now growing at 20% a year. So that 88,000 horses by 2029 20, 20, 20, will be a half a million uh, that, that we're having to contend with. Uh, our hope was that this hearing this week would be an, a, an opportunity to start to talk about ways to maybe start getting that popul- population down.
1: Well, these animal rights groups that have stepped into this—do uh, they have a solution? Do they offer any uh, uh, way out of the, the problem, or are they just saying what you were doing is not the right thing?
5: Well, you know, it's been interesting because obviously these are not people that see the world the same way we do, and and you know, coming from an industry that that cares for livestock professionally we have pretty clear-cut understanding of what needs to be done to manage these populations. A lot of those tools that are, that are totally acceptable to us and, and for obvious reason, because they're proven effective and proven safe, um, are objectionable to, to, these, to these animal rights groups. Um, so what we've done is tried to work with them to find some solutions that are saleable to them, that are still going to be effective in actually reducing the population. They've been really focused on some fertility control drugs like PZP, which is a a, a drug that is uh, short-acting and and controls fertility for a year and requires reapplication. That's been kind of their key solution, and what we've seen is that has about an 18% efficacy rate, which is is basically a total failure. Um, So what we've done is we've really pushed them to embrace large-scale gathers, of these horses, and then more permanent means of fertility control, whether that's surgical sterilization, whether that's some more effective drugs like Gonicon or SpayVac that have multi-year, uh, multi-year applications. So there's even um, some horse IUDs coming to market, if you can believe that. Um, but you know, any of these tools that that allow for a longer-term control of, of fertility, along with large-scale removals from the range, is, is kind of the only thing we can do to get populations down if we're not able to use those more effective tools. Um, So what we've done is put together this proposal that the Humane Society of the United States and ASPCA and Return to Freedom, which is a dedicated horse group, have been willing to sign their names onto, along with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, American Farm Bureau Federation, and others. Um, and, And, you know, the goal here is to come to Congress and say, look, you broke this. And we're giving you a solution here that's embraced by stakeholders across the spectrum as a last chance to get you out of the mess you created for yourselves before you have a problem that that no one can control. Um, And that was kind of our message to Congress earlier this week, was uh, we're we're giving you a gift here, and we really hope you take it.
1: Why did Congress step in and change it?
5: Um, You know, as I said in my testimony earlier this week, this is a great example of the urban-rural divide. Suburban voters... Pictures of pretty horses on pretty rangelands, and 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 they they have an emotional response to that. Uh, and and as we know from the last election cycle, where we saw all these districts flip, suburban voters have the keys to the kingdom right now. They have the numbers, and they're they have a, a tremendous influence on a lot of these members of Congress. So you have a lot of people weighing in on this issue that aren't actually connected to it and don't actually have to deal with the consequences of it. It's very different if you're a rancher in northern Nevada that has. You know a, a, a population of horses that's a thousand percent over what the range can support than if you're a homeowner in uh, in Las Vegas that that doesn't have to actually deal with them so uh, you know that's that's really the biggest challenge here is is there are a lot more of them than there are of us um, and unfortunately we are the ones that actually understand the reality of this
1: we're talking with Ethan Lane with NCBA and executive director of the public lands Council all right Ethan, give us a better um Picture of what the cost is and the challenge of caring for this growing population of wild horses.
5: Well, you you have a couple different ways that that cost is incurred. The damage to rangelands is incalculable. You know, there's a lot of a lot of activists in the in that vegan community and the animal rights community that like to make a comparison between cattle grazing and horse grazing. Uh, forget the physiological differences between the two, which are which are profound. Um, you know the, the benefits of cattle grazing are are, are numerous. We we're, I think everyone in the ag community is, is is aware of that and comfortable with that and and the good work that that managed grazing can provide. Unmanaged uh, uh, wild horse grazing, uh, uh, on the other hand, is incredibly destructive and and in in some instances creates rangelands that will never recover uh, from from this damage. So just the loss of productivity, forage production in those areas alone is a tremendous cost, the taxpayer cost of managing these herds uh, is is not just in that 50 million that's going to feed those 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 50,000 off-range horses today but it's it's the management of those herds on range the 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 failed attempts at administering PZP and the massive regulatory backlog of NEPA evaluations and government studies and litigation that that the government has to contend with uh, at every turn from these activists just to get some management done that's really part of this is even when they want to do a gather Um, a lot of these radical groups will step in and sue them to stop the gather from happening because many of them a believe the horses are native which is just factually incorrect um, and and b believe that the estimates of population are either are either lies or misrepresented or in some other way being uh, blown out of proportion and then in reality, there's plenty of room for these horses. So we're really having to overcome some some really poorly informed people and 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 quite frankly some groups that are spreading misinformation uh, and that often plays out in court and that's never cheap as as I know you know.
1: Well, then it sounds like your challenge is a great one and even within Congress, because as you pointed out uh, what caused Congress to step in and, and make these changes that have led to a lot of these problems, those factors and forces are still at play, right? I mean, the uh, votes, and yeah. uh, those areas, uh, as you said, that may be far enough removed, they don't see the damage, but they want something they think the, they're they're helping when they're they're probably not. they they uh, their voices really count with the uh, members of Congress because of the votes.
5: They do. And, you know, part of what we and I I think we're having some success here. I think a lot of members of Congress are starting to recognize the mess they've created. That doesn't mean they now all of a sudden overnight have the political courage to to fix it, because, you know, that means explaining to their constituents that they've made a poor choice. And that's not something politicians do well. Uh, But that's kind of part of what we're trying to get across to them is you will own this. And when you have a half million horses, I, I, I think people in agriculture that work in in rural environments, especially with wildlife populations, uh, know that if you have an overpopulation like that, you will have a die-off. And and when that die-off occurs, the American people will want to know why. And and you know, I, I think at that point there will be some real um, some real serious conversations about why Congress ignored this problem for as long as they did. You know, that, this isn't simply a, a question of gosh. You know, we a competition over rangelands. There's no competition. These horses uh, destroy everything that that, they're, that they see in their path. They run wildlife off of water sources. Um, you know, they are they're an incredibly detrimental force. And where we see them in large numbers, we see cattle grazing go away. So, uh, you know, I mean, we 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 have a lot of different reasons to to push on this. And and uh, what we need to do is find those key areas where we can resonate with with suburban voters and help them understand that even though you love the horses it's not in their best interest to just let them explode in population.
1: So what's the next step?
5: So the next step is is to see this year's appropriations process through. We have uh, language that's in line with the proposal that we've submitted in the House-side appropriations bill. The Senate has yet to put out their appropriations bill. Um, and obviously, you know, the larger picture we're looking at is the, the threat of a, a shutdown and a divided Congress coming into the fall. But that'll be the playing field where this... Where this unfolds, this is an appropriations issue. So, if the Senate mirrors our language and and is willing to give the BLM additional resources over the next four to five years to really kind of hit this problem with everything it has all at once, we contend that they can they can start to bring the population under control and send the green arrow in the downward direction um, back to a, a sustainable population. But that's kind of where where this this resides now. This is this is back in Congress's lap, and they need to evaluate this proposal. And they need to fund it to a degree. That
1: all right, Ethan. Thank you. watch this and see how it progresses, and uh, stay in touch with you on this. Thank you very much.
5: Thanks, Mike.
1: Ethan Lane with NCBA and executive director of the Public Lands Council, and that is a uh, growing concern, growing challenge, and issue uh, for. A lot of the folks out west and those public lands and the, and the you know, growing wild horse population. We'll see if Congress does anything about it or not. Up next, we'll continue our crop watch around the country. We're going to go to the boot heel of Missouri, check in with Charlie Cruz, see about conditions there. Stay with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up.
6: My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction. Plus, the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early, like they did with my mom. Donate today. 800-745-3327. 800-745-3327. 180
7: over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk.
4: 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works
1: for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org.
4: I had to tell. Everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad
1: Council.
6: Stress Less in a Minute from the American Ag Network. We are talking with Monica McConkie with Prairie St. John's and Eyes on the Horizon Consulting. This week, she tells us how stress can affect our health and our lives.
7: Stress is known to have really detrimental effects to your health, your physical health, your emotional well-being, and it brings on things like um, depression, anxiety, not to mention elevated um, blood pressure and different issues with your heart and your physical wellness or you're finding it more difficult to get out of bed in the morning, more difficult to sleep, you're not motivated for putting the crop in in the spring, then it's time to really pay attention because those are
6: warning signs and red flags. That's Monica McConkey. This is Stress Less in a Minute from the American Ag Network.
8: Dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire.
0: Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.
3: Only you can prevent wildfires.
1: Recently, on Adams on Agriculture, despite the the E-15 announcement uh, about a month ago, uh, we're really here at a, at a crossroads, it seems like, and we'll talk about it with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Uh, it seems like the administration has been trying to walk down the middle and try to keep both sides happy, but we're coming to a point where they're going to have to make a decision one way or another which way they're going to go, aren't they?
5: The
2: simplest way to explain that, Mike, is we expect about 50 million gallons of new ethanol demand to result from the E15 year-round approval that's the output of about one small ethanol plant uh, annually. On the other hand, the demand we've lost through small refiner exemptions is something greater than 2 billion gallons of ethanol. 2 billion gallons is, is roughly equivalent to the output of about 20 large ethanol plants. So it's not a, not a fair trade here uh, when we talk about E15 for small refiner exemptions.
1: Join us on Adams on Agriculture. Well, we continue to check in with farmers around the country for crop condition reports. Let's go to the boot heel of Missouri, Dexter, Missouri. That's where we find Charlie Cruz. Charlie, how are you? Good to talk with you again.
8: Hey, Mike. It's good to talk to you. I'm doing fine. Hope you are, too.
1: How do things look in the boot heel?
8: You know, Mike, this is, and and I'm sure everybody everywhere talks about the same message. Uh, This has been one of the most strange springs uh, into early summer I've ever seen. Um, and it was no exception here in Southeast Missouri. We had a very, very cold, a very wet spring on into early summer, and crops were way behind getting planted. Um, you know, around crops around here looked really, pretty much awful. And about mid-June, it seemed like they just turned around, and and crops, for what they've been through around here, looked pretty good. Our our corn is pretty much all pollinated. Uh, rice of course Uh, we have a lot of rice down here and it loves the water so it looks good Uh, cotton is way late being planted but this heat is catching it up in a hurry we've got uh, 105 to 107 heat index for the next several days and while it's uncomfortable for us it's absolutely what the cotton needs and uh, soybeans are somewhat behind but of course as we know soybeans can catch up and we've got a long growing season down here in southeast missouri so i would say overall for what everybody's been through the crops around here look uh, pretty good
1: so you did not escape uh, the challenges that have hit uh, most of the country this year now i know you plant pretty early usually how much later than normal did you plant
8: well mike you know a lot of times down here people plant corn in march uh mid-March or later, usually, uh, there wasn't anybody any field work done in March this year. And corn was planted uh, all through April into May, uh, mid-May, uh, which is pretty late for us. And uh, cotton, normally we'd plant cotton, uh, you know, from the 20th of April on into early May, and it was mid to late May for most of the cotton being planted, uh, so everything was behind just like it's you know it's been across the country this year and I you know our crops look really good. I think you know some of the top potential yields probably been shaved off because of later plantings and so forth. but we still right now have the potential to make a pretty decent crop for what the year's
1: been. So much of the discussion this year is around prevent plant acres. Do you have any of those in your area there in the southeast Missouri?
8: We've got some, Mike, but uh, not nearly as many as, what, a couple of months ago or or more when it just, you know, we weren't any different than anybody else. It would rain and rain and rain, and then it'd fair up for a few days, and you might get in the field for a day, and then it'd rain again. And, uh, but as far as prevent planted acres, we've got some, but not nearly overall what I thought we might have at one point in time
1: did many acres have to be switched uh, to be planted to another crop because of the lateness?
8: Well, yeah, to some extent. Uh, I think some corn acres, for example, were switched to, to soybeans. Um, and And not only switching in plantings, but there was an awful lot of replanting, which nobody likes to think about anymore, just from the standpoint of having to do it, but also from the cost incurred. But there was a a much greater uh, incident of replanting this year than we'd see in a normal year. But, uh, yeah, to your question, there was some switching of acres. Uh, I think we ended up pretty much with the same number of cotton acres we would have expected, and, and same with rice, but there was some switching of corn acres to soybeans because of the lateness.
1: Now, of course, as you said, the challenge of uh, watching the weather to see how that works. Uh, what about uh, disease or insect uh, challenges? Uh, what are you seeing there?
8: Well, we still continue to get a lot of rain, Mike, and, and we started getting rain this past Sunday from the remnants of the storm in Louisiana, and we've had rain every day and every night since then, anywhere, mm. depending on where you are, from 3 to 7 inches so far. Uh, it's supposed to clear out today, but with, with the heat and the moisture, uh, you know, that entails some concerns for leaf diseases on corn, for example, a lot of people apply fungicides on their corn anymore down here, same with soybeans, um, insect pressure, um, uh, in cotton and, and, and corn and soybeans has been, I would say normal to maybe a little bit above normal, but, uh you know these these weather conditions have been very conducive to all kinds of foliar disease on the, on the crops we grow down here.
1: So you haven't had to run the irrigation units as much.
8: <laughs> you know it's funny you mention that, Mike. I was just thinking the other day. I'm I'm guessing there's been fewer gallons of water pumped for irrigation this year. Uh, than in many years, and as you know, Mike, uh, the county I live in, Stoddard County in the Boot Hill, we have more acres of land uh, under irrigation than any. Uh, we have 114 counties in the state of Missouri. We have more acres of of crop under irrigation than any county in the state. But uh, there there has not been a lot of irrigation. But you know what? We we've had rain, like I said, from Sunday until today, and we're going to have 105, 107 heat index for the next several days. If the sun pops out for a few days, it would not surprise me at all to see some irrigation uh, starting back up uh, the first part of next week.
1: Changes pretty quick, doesn't it?
8: It sure does. All right, Charlie.
1: Yep. Thanks for the update, and it's sure good to talk with you again, and we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much.
8: Thank you, Mike. Always good to talk to you
1: take care charlie cruz down in the boot heel of missouri around dexter missouri with an update on conditions there we'll continue with our uh, crop condition reports tomorrow plus take a look at uh, what's going on in congress as they head towards their august recess what are they working on this uh, budget and other issues and uh, how close are they are they to getting some things done we'll keep you up to date right here on aoa Adams on agriculture have a great day everyone